As usual, uh, there have been uh, the quotes, there's been some editing and cutting and pasting uh, for the sake of flow and time. And he came into all the country about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of penance to the remission of sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For the past three weeks, we've been hearing about St. John the Baptist. Why? In order to answer that, first let's remind ourselves of two basic truths Holy Mother Church keeps before our eyes during Advent. And second, let's take a brief look at some of the parallels between the prophet Elias, as also known as Elijah, parallels between the prophet Elias and St. John the Baptist. First, during Advent, the liturgy keeps two basic truths before our eyes. On the one hand, we're preparing to celebrate the anniversary of the first coming of our Lord some 2,000 years ago on his mission of mercy. And on the other hand, we're reminded to be prepared for an upcoming event, the second coming of our Lord when he comes to judge the living and the dead. As one author notes, quote, During Advent, which is the beginning of the new church calendar year, we prepare ourselves for the Incarnation by seriously examining our lives and asking ourselves if we are ready for a visit from our King. The four weeks, one for each of the thousand years that precede the Incarnation from Adam to Jesus, are meant specifically to remind us the Incarnation was only the first coming of Jesus, but there will most certainly be a second coming. The preparations we make to increase prayer, fasting, examinations, etc., are truly intended to remind us of our year-long duty to be always in preparation for the second coming. Christians fast, make resolutions to pray more, to increase in patience and charity, and in all other ways live as holier people, and they make these resolutions during Advent. The point of all this is that what Christians do or should be doing during Advent and leading up to Christmas is a foreshadowing of what they will do during the days of their lives that lead up to the second coming. We Christians are to prepare for the coming of Christ before he actually comes. That coming is symbolized and recalled at Christmas. Close quote, Jacob Michael. So Advent is a season in which we prepare to celebrate the anniversary of the first coming of our Lord, and at the same time, we're reminded to prepare ourselves for the second coming. Those are the two basic truths, the first coming and the second coming. Now, second, what are we talking about when we refer to the parallels between the prophet Elias and St. John the Baptist? Very briefly, with regards to Elias, of course, he's the great prophet of the Old Testament that was sent to the kingdom of Israel, roughly 900 B.C., during the reign of King Achab and Queen Jezebel. There's plenty that could be said about the reign of these two wicked rulers. One line from the inspired, inerrant word of God sums it up. Quote, Achab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Close quote. So pagan worship, in effect, becomes the religion of the state. The people of Israel are living in apostasy. And in the midst of this apostasy, Elias, the prophet of the one true God, arrived from out of the desert with a message of righteousness, challenging the rulers right to their faces, 
challenging the pagan priests, challenging the people of Israel, challenging them to make a definitive choice, either serve the living and true God or perish. Then, of course, Elias was taken up in the chariot of fire, but he hasn't died yet. In fact, along with Enoch, he's coming back during the reign of the Antichrist to confront the rulers and to preach repentance and judgment to the wayward children of Israel. See, Elias will preach to the Jews, and Father Enoch will preach to the Gentiles. As a great doctor of the church, St. Robert Bellamy states, quote, It is either heresy or proximate to heresy to deny that Enoch and Elias will personally return. Enoch and Elias are still living. When the Antichrist comes, they will oppose him and preserve the elect in the faith of Christ and convert the Jews. Close quote, St. Robert Bellamy. What's the purpose of Elias' preaching at that time? To prepare those who will listen for the coming of the Lord. Now, once we've seen all that, it's easy to see the parallels with St. John the Baptist. St. John is sent before the Lord in the spirit of Elias and with a similar mission. And the scriptures are absolutely clear on this. In chapter 1 of the Gospel of St. Luke, we read about this. Of course, we read in chapter 1 that Elizabeth, who's the wife of the priest Zachary, the father of Zachary, we read that she's far beyond childbearing age. But one day, if Zachary goes up to the holy place in the temple to do his priestly duty by offering incense, there appears to him St. Gabriel the Archangel. St. Gabriel tells him that Elizabeth is going to bear a son, and he shall be named John. And St. Gabriel says, and I quote, And he shall convert many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elias that he may turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the incredulous, the unbelieving, to the wisdom of the just, to prepare for the Lord a perfect people. Close quote, inspired in Aaron, word of God. So St. John the Baptist comes up out of the desert and in the spirit of Elias confronts the rulers and preaches a message of repentance and judgment to the wayward children of Israel to bear those who will listen for the coming of the Lord. That great Benedictine, Dom Garanger, comments on the reaction to St. John the Baptist's preaching. Quote, St. John preaches penance and the obligation men are under of preparing for the coming of Christ by self-purification. But the men around him are as indifferent as though they neither expected nor wanted a Savior. St. John preaches penance, an obligation of preparing for the coming of Christ, but the men are as indifferent as if they neither expected nor wanted a Savior. He's preaching to men that have the true religion, and they just don't care. He tells them to repent to bear fruits of repentance. He warns them that a tree that does not bring forth good fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire. He warns them that the Lord is going to separate the wheat from the chaff 
The chaff will be burnt in unquenchable flames. And they just don't care. Some things never change. So why have we been hearing about St. John the Baptist during Advent? On the one hand, so that we're prepared to receive all the graces attached to the great feast of Christmas, that liturgical celebration of the first coming of our Lord. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, so we're prepared to meet our Lord when he comes again. Just think of how much emphasis the church puts on the importance of being prepared. From the last Sunday after Pentecost, that's the last Sunday of the liturgical year, right up through the fourth Sunday of Advent, that's five Sundays in a row, the church has placed this reality before our eyes. The Lord is coming again. Be prepared. In a word, repent. Cornelius Elapide comments, quote, This was the theme, this the sum of the Baptist's preaching. Repent, because well nigh all were grievous sinners, living in vices and lusts. Therefore, repentance was necessary, that they might receive the grace and righteousness of Christ. Moreover, repentance is not only amendment of manners and the beginning of a new life, but it is a detestation, chastisement, and destruction of the old sinful life. For the new life cannot effectually be begun unless the old life be cast away. Close quote. We each need to hear and heed the warning to repent. We each need to live the message of St. John the Baptist. We each need to make sure we have prepared the ways of the Lord. And be especially sure that we're not living in grievous sin, snared by the vices and lusts of our society. Earlier this year, we covered the absolute necessity of contrition when we considered the forgiveness of sins. Today, we'll turn to confession and satisfaction. But before we do that, let's have a brief review. Mortal sin. Mortal sin is the one thing that can land us in the fires of hell. A single mortal sin deprives the soul of sanctifying grace. Remember that sanctifying grace is the supernatural life of the soul. It makes the soul an enemy of God. It takes away the merit of all its good actions. It deprives it of the right to everlasting happiness in heaven, and it makes it deserving of an eternity in hell. That's mortal sin. There are three things necessary to make a sin mortal. First, the thought, desire, word, action, or omission must be seriously wrong, or at least understood as seriously wrong. Second, the sinner must be mindful of the serious wrong. Third, the sinner must fully consent to it. So the three things necessary to make a sin mortal are serious matter, sufficient reflection, and full consent of the will. Father, before you go on, can you give some examples of serious matter? Sure. We'll run down a very short list. Playing with a Ouija board. Blasphemy. Missing Mass on Sunday or a Holy Day of Obligation. 
disobedience in serious matter, getting drunk, getting high, hatred of a neighbor, wearing immodest, provocative clothing, using contraception, looking at bad websites, refusing a reasonable request to honor the marital debt, passionate kissing and any related behavior in the unmarried, stealing a valuable item, perjury, calumny, okay, etc., etc. Any good examination of conscience will have plenty of more examples. Again, the three things necessary to make a sin mortal are serious matter, sufficient reflection, and full consent of the will. Venial sin. Venial sin is a less serious offense against the laws of God, which does not deprive the soul of sanctifying grace, which can be pardoned even without sacramental confession. Now let's quickly review the three things required for a sacrament. The minister, the matter of the sacrament, and the form of the sacrament. The minister of the sacrament is the person with the power to confer the sacrament in the name of Jesus Christ and by his authority. The minister must have the intention of doing what the church does. Now briefly, what are the matter and form of a sacrament? The matter is the material used for the sacrament, the sensible part of the sacrament. For example, water for baptism, wheat bread, grape wine for the most blessed sacrament. The form, form is the words that a minister must pronounce in order to confect the sacrament. For example, the form of baptism is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The form of the sacrament of penance, which is applied by the priest to the penitent, is I absolvo, ego te absolvo. The matter of the sacrament of penance, which is brought by the penitent to the confessional, has three parts. There are three parts of the matter, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Again, the form is I absolve you, and the matter has three parts, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. The Council of Trent, quote, The acts of the penitent himself, namely contrition, confession, and satisfaction, constitute the matter of this sacrament, which acts, inasmuch as they are by God's institution required for the integrity of the sacrament, and for the full and complete permission of sins, are for this reason called the parts of penance. Close quote, the Council of Trent. We've already considered contrition. We saw that out of the three things that the penitent brings into the confessional, those three things again are contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Out of these three things, contrition by far and away holds the first place. We saw that sorrow for sin is so necessary for obtaining forgiveness that without it, even God himself cannot pardon a sin. We saw that a person who dies in sin without making examination, or dies without making examination of conscience or confessing his sins may be saved by making an act of perfect contrition if there's no time to confess his sins or no priest to whom he confessed them. But without sorrow, it is impossible for the sinner to be saved. Without sorrow, 
it is impossible for the sinner to be saved. In other words, we can't be saved unless we repent. We saw that this sorrow for sin, this hatred for sin, lies in the will. And it means that we prefer to lose everything rather than to have offended God and to lose His grace and friendship. We saw that our sorrow must have a supernatural motive. We must be sorry for having offended God, for having lost heaven, for having merited hell. That a natural motive, for example, like the loss of a job or a good name, is not sufficient. We saw that we have to have this sorrow for each and every one of our mortal sins, or none of them are forgiven. We saw that in regards to venial sins, one venial sin can be forgiven without obtaining pardon of another. That it is enough to have true sorrow for one venial sin in order to obtain forgiveness for it. We've seen that after committing a mortal sin, there are four possible states of the soul. Number one, the reprobate sins. The reprobate sins occurs when the sinner, as a punishment for sin, no longer seriously or intelligently cares about his salvation. That's the reprobate sin. Number two, defective contrition. Defective contrition occurs when the sinner has some regret for sin, but he lacks a firm purpose of amendment. That's defective contrition. Number three, imperfect contrition. Imperfect contrition occurs when the sinner has a firm purpose of amendment, but is moved by less perfect motives than the love of God. For example, the fear of hell. That's imperfect contrition. And number four, perfect contrition. Perfect contrition occurs when the sinner is moved by regret for sin on account of the wrong done to God, who is infinitely good and worthy of all love. That's perfect contrition. We saw that it is absolutely essential for each one of us to be sure that we have a firm purpose of amendment when we go to confession. Should we have had the great misfortune to have fallen into a mortal sin? We have to realize what a terrible danger we're in. Should we only have defective contrition? Remember that a man with defective contrition feels some regret for his sins. He may even be crying about them. But he remains unwilling to put God first in his life. He lacks a firm purpose of amendment. And this is key to realize. The man does not, with a defective contrition, does not have a firm purpose of amendment. He will not put God first in his life. So, he won't return ill-gotten goods. He won't start paying overdue debts when he's actually able to pay. He will not stop keeping company with a sinful companion. He will not abandon a drug or an alcohol habit. He will not put a filter on his computer. He will not stop watching evil shows on television. He will not repent of a sterilization. He will not forgive an enemy, etc., etc. And the terrifying reality of a man in this situation is even if he were to go to confession, and he may very well go to confession, the act of contrition would be a lie be a lie, since a man with a defective contrition is not serious about avoiding sin and the near occasion of sin. 
And since he's not serious about it, since he doesn't have contrition, even were the priest to pronounce the words of absolution over him, it just ricochet off. The absolution would be invalid because there's not proper matter there. The absolution would be invalid. And so not only does the man remain in his sin, he leaves the confessional with one more sin, a sacrilegious confession. We have to be very attentive to make sure that we have either unimperfect or perfect contrition when we go to the confession, that we have a firm purpose of amendment. So much for the review. Now let's take a closer look at confession and satisfaction. Confession, the Council of Trent, quote, The universal church has always understood that the complete confession of sins was also instituted by the Lord and is, by divine law, necessary for all who have fallen after baptism. Because our Lord Jesus Christ, when about to ascend from earth to heaven, left behind him priests, his own vicars, as rulers and judges, to whom all the mortal sins into which the faith of Christ may have fallen should be brought in order that they may, in virtue of the power of the keys, pronounce the sentence of remission or retention of sins. Close quote, the Council of Corinth. The complete confession of sins was instituted by the Lord and is by divine law necessary for all who have fallen after baptism. This has always been one of the main reasons that people convert. It's always been one of them. All the self-help books in the world, all the psychiatrists, all the psychologists, all the counselors, all the Protestant preachers in the world, taken individually or even an entire group, all of them can't wash away the guilt of even one mortal sin. St. Alphonsus explains the importance of confession. This is a long quote. He who has offended God by mortal sin has no remedy to prevent his damnation without the confession of his sin. But if I'm sorry for the sin from my heart, is that not enough? If I do penance for it my whole life, if I go into the desert and live on wild herbs and sleep on the ground, you may do as much as you please. But if you do not confess every mortal sin that you remember, you cannot obtain pardon. I said every mortal sin that you remember. For if you've involuntarily forgotten a sin, it has been pardoned indirectly, provided you had a general sorrow for all your offenses against God. But if you've concealed it voluntarily, you must confess not only the sin that's been concealed, but also the other mortal sins that have been confessed. In fact, you must not only confess the mortal sins told in the bad confession, you must also confess all those told in subsequent confessions prior to setting things right. Why? Because the confession was sacrilegious and therefore null and void. How many poor souls does shame send to hell? St. Ananias relates that a prelate once saw a devil beside a woman during her confession. The prelate asked him what he was doing. The devil answered, I'm fulfilling the precept 
of restitution. When I tempted this woman to sin, I took away her shame. I am now restoring it so that she will not confess her sin. This, as St. John Chrysostom says, is one of the tricks of the devil. God joins shame to sin and confidence to confession. The devil inverts the whole order. He joins confidence to sin and shame to confession. If there's anyone who has concealed a sin through shame, confess it right now. All you have to do is say to the confessor, Father, I feel ashamed to tell a certain sin. Or say, Father, I have a feeling of guilt about my past life. The priest will take care of it from there. You'll be able to pluck out the thorn that is killing you, and thus give peace to your conscience. You know what joy you shall feel after having expelled the viper from your heart. But I'm afraid that the confessor will speak harshly to me or think terrible thoughts about me when he hears the sins I have committed. Why should you say that? Why should he speak harshly to you or think terrible thoughts to you, about you? All these are false suspicions that the devil puts in your head. Confessors sit in the confessionals not to hear about ecstasies and revelations, but to hear the sins of those who come to confession. And they cannot experience greater consolation than when a repentant sinner comes to make known to them his misery. Close quote. Confessors cannot experience greater consolation than when a repentant sinner comes to make known to them his misery. That's absolutely true. What have we seen? We've seen that if we should have the great misfortune to fall into mortal sin, we have to confess. We have to confess every mortal sin we remember, what kind of sin it was, and the number of times we committed it. We've seen that if we deliberately conceal a mortal sin in confession, none of our sins are forgiven. But now let's suppose after confession, you know, we're out there changing the oil in the pickup and suddenly we remember, oh my gosh, those bank robberies, I forgot to confess them. I've already made restitution. But I forgot to confess in my last confession. Be at peace. If you forgot your mortal sins, they're forgiven. But what do you have to do? The next time you go to confession, you're in there, bless you, Father, for that sin. It's been a week since my last confession. I forgot in my wild, crazy days, I robbed seven banks. I've never confessed that before. I did give the money back. And you're good to go. You're good to go. You, you confess it. You, it's forgiven. You didn't follow the state of grace by remembering a past sin. But you have to mention it in your next confessional because you still have to make the formal apology to God in the confessional, okay? That part, just in case, all right? So, we also, uh, if we're having a tough time because of shame, just tell the priest something, Father, I'm having a tough time, and Father, can you help me here? We'll be glad to help you here. That's why we're there. That's why we're there. Finally, if you have something shameful, Pray to Our Lady before you go into confession. She'll make sure to give you the help you need to make a good confession, get your conscience clean, and get you back on the right track, okay? So we've looked at confession. We've looked at contrition. We've looked at confession. Let's turn to satisfaction. Satisfaction is just another word for the penance given by the priest. The Council of Trent, quote, The priest of the Lord must impose salutary and suitable satisfactions in keeping with the nature of the crimes and the ability of the penitents. Otherwise, if they should connive at sins and deal too leniently with penitents, imposing certain very light works for very grave offenses, 
they might become partakers in the sins of others. Close quote the Council of Trent. Okay, so satisfaction is the penance. That great doctor of moral theology, St. Alphonsus, comments on this. This is a long quote, but it's full of useful information. Quote, Satisfaction is a necessary part of the sacrament of penance, but it is not precisely essential, because without it the confession may be valid, as would be the case if a penitent were dying and unable to reform a suitable penance. But if the person at confession does not have the intention of performing the penance assigned, the confession is no good. The penitent is obliged to have the intention of complying with the penance. If he has the intention of performing the penance and afterward neglects to fulfill it, the confession is valid. But he's guilty of a venial sin if the penance is light, or a mortal sin if the penance is great. A great penance is an example of the rosary. If fulfillment of the penance were to become very difficult, maybe changed by the same or by another confessor. How soon after confession must the penance be performed? It must be performed within the time fixed by the confessor. If he does not fix the time, it ought to be performed soon. When the penance is great, to delay for a long time would be a mortal sin. If the penitent falls into mortal sin after the confession, is he still obliged to do his penance? Yes. Does he satisfy that obligation by performing it in a state of sin? Yes, he does. St. Alphonsus now points out another common problem regarding satisfaction. Many go to confession, accept the penance, but afterwards do not fulfill it. But Father, I'm not able to do all my confessors imposed on me. Why, didn't you, why did you accept the penance that you knew you could not perform? I recommend you speak plainly and say to the confessor, Father, I'm afraid that I should not do all you have imposed on me. Please give me a lighter penance. What use is it to say, Father, I will do it, and afterwards do nothing? Close quote, St. Alphonsus. What have we seen? We've seen that satisfaction is a penance imposed by the priest. We've seen that in order for a confession to be valid, the penitent has to have the intention of performing the penance. We've seen that when a penitent neglects to do the penance imposed, if the penance was light, a few prayers, it's a venial sin. If the penance was heavy, a rosary, a mortal sin. We've seen that the penance must be performed within the time fixed by the confessor, that if he does not fix the time, it ought to be performed soon. We've seen that when the penance is great, to delay performing for a long time would be a mortal sin. We've seen that if the penitent falls in a mortal sin after the confession, he's still obliged to do his penance, and he will still satisfy that obligation by performing it in the state of sin. And we've seen that if a penance is too much, the penitent should ask the priest to please give a lighter penance. Don't hesitate to do that. We're here to help you out, not push you deeper into a hole. Look, our job is to try to get you guys to heaven. You're like our tickets to heaven. And I'll tell you what, i got plans. I don't want to have anybody not making it and then, then I don't get to, all right? So we're here to help you out. We want to help you out. If it's too rough, if it seems like too much, if they give you some obscure prayer, Father, I really don't know how to say the Hail Mary, we'll give you something else. I mean, you just tell the priest if you can't do that. And don't worry about what's the priest going to think of me. This is just from the devil. As St. Alphonse points out, we're not back there expecting you to tell you what great people you are. We know that you're coming to confess your sins. 
The moral manuals all say that after the first year, in the first year of a man's priesthood, he's going to hear all the different kind of sins there are. We, neither of us, are in our first year as priests. We've heard tens of thousands of confessions. You're not going to tell us something we haven't heard. Don't worry about it. There's also grace. You can tell me some horrible things you did to my cousin, and afterwards we could go shoot pool. I'm telling you, there's some, it's just, you just had, it's a grace. Don't worry about what the priest thinks. The priest thinks, thanks be to God they got that out of their conscience. Now I don't have to worry about that person if I'm on the watch when they die. We're delighted when people make a good confession. It's all from the devil, this fear of getting rid of this stuff, okay? Our Lady will help you with that. Let's close. St. Alphonsus records the story of a certain lady who for years had been going to confession, but she kept concealing a particular sin because she was confessing the priest she knew. One day, two friars from the Dominican order happened to pass by. The lady, who was always waiting for a strange confessor, asked one of them to hear a confession. So the other friar withdrew, stood back away, he remained present, but drew back in order to preserve privacy. After the fathers continued on their journey, later on, the, the one friar told the confessor, hey, when that lady was confessing her sins, I could see all kinds of serpents coming out of her mouth as she was confessing her sins. But there was a large, horrible-looking serpent whose head only came out, but afterwards went entirely back in. And when the head drew back in her mouth, all the other serpents went back inside of her. And the confessor got shocked. He turned around and started hurrying back to the house. He got to the house of the lady. When he got there, he found out she had died suddenly. Afterwards, when he was in prayer, the unhappy woman appeared to him. She said, I am the unfortunate person who made my confession to you. I committed one sin which I voluntarily concealed from the confessors whom I knew. So God sent you to me. But even then, I could not conquer the shame of telling it. He therefore suddenly struck me dead has justly condemned me to hell. After these words, the earth opened, she fell into the chasm, and instantly disappeared. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight his path.